Good evening. This is Rob McClure along with Vicki Iden bringing you your local loo- local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Wisconsin will receive more than $115 million in federal funds for transit projects this year, Governor Evers announced yesterday. The funding comes from a $1 trillion infrastructure bill that President Joe Biden signed into law in November. The $115 million earmarked for Wisconsin will be split between the state government and local municipalities, uh, though the exact breakdown of how funds will be spent has not yet been determined. Under the plan, Milwaukee will receive $32 million and Madison will receive $12.5 million. That's according to the Capital Times. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway said pre-pandemic challenges in transportation have not gone away and federal funding is key to recovery. In March, it was announced that the city will receive $6.4 million from Biden's infrastructure bill to rebuild and restore the city's antiquated bus maintenance facility. In a statement, Rhodes-Conway did not directly respond to questions put to her today about how the additional $12.5 million will be used. The interim chancellor of the UW-Whitewater campus resigned on Monday in protest over the UW system's decision to question all UW students about their perception of free speech. The survey is sponsored by the Menard Center for Public Policy at UW-Stout. The center was founded by Charles Koch of Koch Industries and has received $2 million from the Menard family. Initially, the interim system president, Michael Falbo, informed the various campus chancellors that they would not be required to send the survey to students. This week, he changed his position. The Whitewater Chancellor, Jim Henderson, told the Wisconsin State Journal that President Falbo changed his mind because he was afraid of political fallout from Republican legislators who have claimed that campus leaders are stamping out conservative viewpoints. The survey will be distributed to students tomorrow, and they will have one month to complete it. Henderson is the fourth person to hold the chancellorship at Whitewater in the past two years. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that a Madison-based architectural stone cutter and supplier is building a production and executive management facility in Sun Prairie. Cora Stone Company provides custom-cut stone for architects, artists, and masons to use in building restoration. Some recent projects for which the company has supplied materials include the UW-Madison's Chemistry Building and the U.S. Capitol Visitor Center in Washington, D.C. Quora also plans to help with the construction of the Barack Obama Presidential Library. The Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation is supporting the project by authorizing up to $350,000 in state income tax credits over the next three years. Those were the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Yesterday was the 2022 spring elections, and by this morning the results were in, and we got to see who won and who lost in elections across the city and across Dane County. Our producer, Nate Weggehaup, has all the details. Yesterday was the 2022 spring election. In Dane County, 22.5% of registered voters turned out to vote. That's the lowest since 2014. Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald says that low turnout was not surprising. Yeah, it was pretty smooth and it was relatively quiet. You know, I think, you know, the fact that there wasn't anything at the top of the ticket like Supreme Court or, you know, um, public instruction, you know, statewide race, 
kind of kept the, the turnout down. The, you know, if no one's spending a lot of money on elections, you can see that that affects turnout. So, um, you know, this election versus November, they, they really almost have nothing in common. Turning to the election results themselves, incumbents on the Dane County Board, Madison School Board, and judicial candidates had a good night. On the Dane County Board, all 10 incumbent supervisors won back their seats. Some challengers did come close. In District 20, the race between incumbent Jeff Wigand and challenger Scott Mahalik came down to just 33 votes, or just over 1%. Meanwhile, GOP-backed Carlos Umpierre also came within reach of victory last night in District 25 against incumbent Tim Kiefer, though still lost by several hundred votes. Incumbent Sarah Smith in District 24 says that she is happy to see all incumbents wound up getting re-elected and is ready to work with them over the next term. Well, I'm very excited to be able to continue to serve with a lot of those folks. You know, Supervisor Doolin and I served together on the City-County Homeless Issues Committee. And so I'm really excited to see her reelected and continue to work with her. And it's clear that, you know, all of us that were contested in this race really put in the work and we uh, went out door to door. And that's really the thing that makes a difference in a local election. While the incumbents ruled in the contested races, that still only counted for 10 of 37 county board seats and almost a third of the Dane County Board will be new. All seats on the Dane County Board were up for election yesterday due to recent redistricting. Eleven new candidates for Dane County Board ran unopposed and unsurprisingly won. District 12 and District 21 tied for the most write-in votes at just 33 apiece. One of those candidates is Olivia Zistra Sampagna, a 21-year-old student at UW-Madison and the board's newest supervisor for District 13. She says that she first thought about running for the seat after working in the Capitol building. I started working at the state Capitol for, as an intern um, last May, and then I got into fellowship there. So that's where I've been working, and that's actually how I got introduced to this opportunity to run for the Board of Supervisors was because my colleague at the time and also my boss kind of presented to me, they're like, there's an open seat, you can run unopposed, and, you know, we'll help you with everything. So that's how I got into it. Also on yesterday's ballot, of course, three seats for the Madison School Board. Laura Simpkin got about 70% of the vote, beating out Shepard Joyner for seat three on the Madison School Board by about 13,000 votes. The two candidates share many of the same opinions on school policy, but they differ on a crucial issue. Simpkin supports bringing back school resource officers, while Joyner does not. Here's Simpkin speaking to WORT last month. The police were called to the school or the vicinity of the school 63 times in the first two months. And so what that indicates to me is that the police are already there. And the purpose of the school resource officers was to build relationships with the students to help to um, de-escalate situations before they happened and to be a resource for the students that were there. And when we eliminated them without putting other supports into place, we created a void for our students. While seat three was the only officially contested race, the school board's fourth seat held by school board president Ali Muldrow saw a writing campaign by local conservative blogger David Blaska. 
Muldrow easily beat Blaska, but that race had significantly more write-in votes than any other race on the Madison ballot, with Muldrow getting around 88% of the vote and write-ins composing around 11%. Typically, write-in campaigns hover around 1-2%. to The final seat on the Madison School Board, seat 5, saw Nichelle Nichols winning in a uncontested race. Nichols, an administrative employee within the district, told the State Journal that she is against bringing SROs back into Madison schools and that she plans on focusing on staff retention and hiring throughout the district. Zooming out statewide, Milwaukee saw a historic day as Cavalier Johnson became the city's first elected black mayor. Johnson has been acting mayor since December after Tom Bear resigned his position to serve as a U.S. ambassador. Cavalier Johnson isn't Milwaukee's first black mayor. That title belongs to Marvin Pratt, who assumed office 18 years ago when a previous mayor resigned. Pratt then lost in the general election to former mayor Tom Barrett. Johnson beat out conservative Bob Donovan, winning 68% of the vote. Mayor Johnson told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that he is thankful for the work Pratt had done for the city and that he was ready to address the many issues facing the city of Milwaukee. Some judges were also on the ballot, one upset there as GOP-backed Judge Maria Lazar defeated incumbent Lori Kornblum. Kornblum, a liberal-leaning judge appointed by Governor Evers, helped to keep a liberal-conservative split on the District 2 Court of Appeals in southeastern Wisconsin. Lazar, whose campaign prominently featured images of the Christmas parade tragedy in Waukesha, was endorsed in the campaign by 2020 presidential elections investigator Michael Gableman. The Madison City Clerk's Office reports that 10 voters cast provisional ballots across the city yesterday. If you're one of them and want to have your ballot cast, counted for the final tally, you must provide any missing documents to the city clerk's office by 4 p.m. on Friday. Outgoing Dane County supervisors will have one last meeting tomorrow night when they'll say their goodbyes. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. While Dane County residents voted to decide who would serve on the Madison School Board and Dane County Board, residents in western Wisconsin voted to approve the Clean Water Now referendum in an effort to demand state lawmakers address their water concerns. What is the Clean Water Now referendum and how will it help the people of La Crosse County? WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Johnson Bridgewater to learn more. So, Johnson, starting off, tell me a little bit about this referendum. What was it? What did it look to do? Sure. So the Clean Water Now advisory referendum grew out of the results of 2019 when both sides of the aisle um, were involved in spending a full year between uh, Governor Evers and the Speaker's task force 2019 in Wisconsin was spent visiting and traveling around the state, talking to citizens about water issues. They 
summarized all of that, came up with legislation that both sides agreed would go a long way towards reversing these negative water quality trends. And sadly, we just wrapped up uh, recently another legislative session where great legislation like the CLEAR Act, which would have directly gone to benefit people like the residents of French Island, and sadly, nothing has happened on any of the positive water legislation that's been discussed for more than two years now. Now, you mentioned French Island there, which is over in La Crosse County, where I actually lived for a couple of years there. Uh, And this was voted on, this referendum was voted on in La Crosse County and Eau Claire County yesterday, and both of which passed overwhelming numbers. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of water in both? Why was this introduced in those counties? Sure. So the Clean Water Now advisory referendum is absolutely a product of people on the ground. So grassroots advocates in communities that are being impacted by water, taking up this idea to take an action that ultimately directly leads to the governor's desk, to their uh, legislators' desks, and to local officials. And yeah, sadly, in La Crosse and Eau Claire, both of those communities are absolutely suffering from results of PFAS contamination that the citizens had nothing to do with. They're completely the the victims in this moment. And again, sadly, the legislature has some steps it could take to start trying to reverse not not necessarily the full uh, PFAS contamination picture, but they sure could start taking steps to work towards reversing the impacts to local residents. And so is PFAS sort of the main focus of this referendum or are there other issues as well that are this referendum is sort of taking aim at? Yeah, that's that's actually a, a good and important question. Um, the I'm sad to say the range of issues is quite broad. PFAS is probably actually the, the last in line. We have bacterial issues. We have nitrate issues. We have arsenic issues. We have radium issues. We have molybdenum issues, lead pipes. Um, So long story short, it's far from the only issue. It has become the most uh, visibly um, referenced issue because it is absolutely a one-to-one with people's drinking water, which is ultimately the most important issue here. But what I would have to say is sadly, no, We started with Wisconsin being nationally known as a leader on all kinds of water quality and water quantity issues. We, you know, we gave birth to Earth Day. We reversed the effects of acid rain better than any other state. Um, But sadly, decades later, here we are going in the opposite direction. And the Clean Water Now advisory referendum is not meant to call out and point out each and every issue. What it is intended to do, though, as more and more counties band together, a very simple, clean, clear message, make water your number one legislative priority because it matters more than anything. Now I want to talk about this referendum a little bit. So this referendum, which was voted in both Eau Claire and La Crosse County yesterday, 
Uh, similar ones have been voted on in other counties in the last year or two here. Uh, it's more of a poll than anything else. It's non-binding, more meant to send a message. So I want to ask, from your perspective, what is the benefit of having this referendum to send a message to state lawmakers as opposed to, say, having the county board submit something on their own? Why was this referendum voted on? Sure. I'll, I'll point out two things that I think are worthy of discussing. The first one is just the sheer quantity. Uh, not that, you know, 20, 30 plus supervisors aren't important, but 10, 15, 18,000 individual voters uh, in, in the cases of La Crosse and I think around 14 or 15 for Eau Claire. You know, so we're talking about the difference between thousands of citizens saying, you need to do something about this versus, you know, 10, 20, 30 elected officials uh, saying the same thing. And I know something similar is being talked about in Monroe County, also out west in the state here. Uh, But that one's going to be a resolution, I believe. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So this this um, initiative is similar to uh, fair maps. And in that regard, some counties pass resolutions supporting the idea of fair maps. Some counties pass the advisory referendum. Some counties did both. And sadly, a few counties chose to do nothing. But we're in that same uh, we're in that same camp in the sense that we are going to continue talking about this. It's going to be up to the people on the ground, the grassroots, to make this happen, whether that's a resolution through their board, whether that's an advisory referendum resolution through their board, or other, uh, or other opportunities for them to voice their concern. But we want to be very clear, this is intended to give the general public Uh, everyday people a platform to make it into something that they are concerned about in their neighborhood. And then what is the end goal with these referendum here? What does a right to clean water look like for people? You bet. I could not give a single answer to that. But what I could say is all of the things that make Wisconsin amazing to me, I'm, <laughs> I was born and raised next door in Minnesota. I'll admit it. I have absolutely fallen for Wisconsin, and I am settled permanently uh, way up north. Everything about Wisconsin that is, in my opinion and a lot of people's opinions, makes it special and unique can be traced back to water, you know, whether it was uh, a grandparent teaching, uh, you know, their kid to swim, uh, whether it was a, a mom or dad taking their kid out to teach them how to fish, uh, whether it's the uh, the economics of tourism, which are huge. All of these things depend on Wisconsin maintaining a certain level of quantity and quality of water that, again, we're very sorry to see year by year is slipping away. And Johnson, do you have just any final thoughts on the Clean Water Now referendum that you'd like to share with me? Yeah, actually, so two points. Um, We have been 
uh, facing a lot of discussion related to the idea that a, uh, a, a county advisory referendum is expensive and puts in an unfair expense burden on the county. And I want to share, we have talked to numerous uh, county clerks. The cost estimates have been anywhere from $37.50 up to $400. Um, so I want to be very clear. If you are hearing people tell you it's going to cost your county $5,000 to do this, that is just not the case. And the second important thing I would share, we have also been hearing uh, a lot of elected officials feel that they were elected and put in place to take care of their constituents, which we would actually uh, absolutely agree with. But they kind of go a step beyond and say, look, I'm taking care of this water issue. I don't need all the voters, you know, to have to get involved. We're firmly behind the idea that democracy is a verb. It's meant to be practiced. It's not meant to be preached. And so why would a county supervisor not want to give their citizens chance to vote? We would argue that this is absolutely in the best interest of Wisconsin, best interest of democracy, best interest of water quality to give everybody a chance to share what they're feeling about this issue. I've been talking with Johnson Bridgewater with the River Alliance of Wisconsin about the Clean Water Now referendum, which was overwhelmingly approved by voters in La Crosse and Eau Claire counties yesterday. Johnson, thank you so much again for talking with me here today. Much appreciated and thank you so very much for the time. You are listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT, Madison's community radio station. Stay with us for the second half of the show. There's a lot more coming up. Do you know about Madison's Geology Museum? If you don't, we'll tell you why you should. Madison in the 60s examines how the city responded to the death of Martin Luther King Jr. 54 years ago. And we have another big old interesting storm sitting right over us this evening, just like last week. A lot of differences between those two storms. I'll go into those in detail in a comprehensive weather report in the second half. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. When people think about geology, most people will think of, uh, well, rocks. 
But the Geology Museum on the UW-Madison campus shows that geology is much more than rocks. It's rocks from space, bones, and fossilized dino droppings. Last month, WORT reporter Andy Barrow went to the Museum of Geology to learn what makes the museum special. The University of Wisconsin Museum of Geology is located on 1215 Dayton Street, not far from the core of the UW-Madison campus. From outside, it looks like just another campus facility. It's a stories-tall red brick box, bustling with busy faculty and exhausted students. Hidden inside, however, is a treasure trove, a museum bigger than it looks like from the outside that represents Wisconsin's entire material history and miniature. So one of the deeper stories here in Wisconsin relates to our state rock, which is Wisconsin red granite. That's Brooke Norstead. She's the assistant director of the museum, and she was kind enough to give me a guided tour. This rock, it's really kind of this gorgeous deep red color, and you can see flecks of black and clear in it. And here in the museum, we have a few chunks of it as well. Is that what that does? Yeah, and so this here, you can see this is a, um, yeah, it's kind of got this ruby red color, but you can also kind of pick out some little black flecks in there. The sound you're hearing in the background is the one that followed us throughout the tour. It's elementary school kids who came to the museum on their spring break, and they wanted to see dinosaurs. They'd even practiced their roars. Um, you know, if you've ever been down to... Um... Let me tell you, those kids did not leave disappointed. Here there are dinosaur bones aplenty, along with fossilized trilobites and mastodons and... Coprolites. And so, coprolite is the fancy way of saying fossil poop. But it's more than bones and poop. Brooke and I talk about deep time. The idea that the material objects around us can tell us about the stories of the places we inhabit, even going back thousands or millions of years. When I'm thinking about geology and fossils and rocks, you know, we use a lot of really big numbers in geology, right? We sling around, oh, this is so-and-so millions of years old or so-and-so billions of years old, right? Um, so one thing I find helpful when uh, thinking about these big times, you know, deep time, is a timeline where if you think of yourself standing and you know, the top of your head is today and where your feet touch the ground is when the earth formed, which we know is 4.5 billion years ago, right? So that's billion with a B. And then, then we think about where do some of these things we're looking at in the museum, where do those land on this timeline? Here's what Brooke had to tell me about just one object in the museum's collection, a smooth, glassy little pebble small enough to hold in the palm of your hand. We have a very special meteorite in the museum too, right over here. Um, so I said there are three spots that meteorites come from. The asteroid belt is what we focused on, right? These All these leftover bits. But you can have asteroids that smash in to Mars or the moon and knock off bits that land on Earth. So a Martian meteorite is a meteorite that's landed on Earth, but it's from Mars. And we have one of those here. So this, um, you know, is not very large, you know, it's golf ball sized, right? But this is a rock that actually is from Mars. 
And so about a million years ago, an asteroid smashed into Mars, knocked off bits, and then this actually landed and fell in Morocco in 2011. At this point, I jumped in and asked how the meteorite came to be here in Wisconsin. Mm, Sure. So how did we get a piece of Mars? Yeah, well, uh, we're lucky to be, uh, you know, we're part of the University of Wisconsin, and we're nestled within the geoscience department here on campus. And so part of what our museum does is we work with scientists in the department on federal grants. And so that, you know, if they apply to the National Science Foundation or to NASA for a grant, part of what those agencies want to do is um, have the scientists tell taxpayers what they're using that money for, right? And that's where the museum comes in. And so, um, yeah, the Earth's oldest rocks and fossils and this piece of Mars, this whole area of the museum is possible because of um, a NASA grant. Eventually, we came across a window where we could watch scientists and students from the department examine fossils and clean them for display. So as we um, move deeper into the fossil area, um, this is probably one of the more, we, we like to think of it as the most visible lab on campus because there's a window where you can look in and see um, our scientists and our volunteers, our students cleaning off dinosaur fossils and other fossils that they've excavated, usually from Wyoming. And so pretty much if you peek in here, you're probably going to see fossils from Wyoming. And um, you can, you know, right now we've kind of got um, some, <laughs> some big, big fossils in the middle here. So those are actually um, bones from an Apatosaurus, which is one of those long-necked, long-tailed dinosaurs. So that big one there that you can see, it kind of has a knob on the end of it, is um, uh, a femur. So that's the thigh bone. And that knobby part is like, if you imagine in your own hip, right, it's a ball and socket joint. And so that ball kind of fits into the hip. This is the thing that allows you to like swing your legs and shake your hips a little bit. Finally, I asked Brooke what advice she had for folks who wanted to visit the museum. Um, Well, I would just reiterate a warm welcome and invitation for people to come visit the museum. Uh, You know, we're free. We are open Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 4.30 and on Saturdays from 9 to 1. And, you know, really the biggest obstacle is finding parking. (laughs) And even that's not terrible. Just try to not come on a game day. (laughs) This has been Andy Barrow reporting for WORT. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, your barometer's gotten a workout two weeks in a row now. It dropped to 29.37 inches of mercury earlier this afternoon, so not quite the 29.23, I think it was, that we saw last Wednesday night with that storm. Uh, Last week's pressure drop was due to a storm that was transitioning circulation centers over top of us, you might remember, and about to race off to the northeast. By contrast, this week's storm is in the process of deepening an upper trough over top of it and occluding, wrapping cold air fully around it at the lower levels. 
and diverting what remains of the warm air then trained in it uh, up aloft. Those processes have slowed down the forward motion of this storm, so rather than racing out of here, it's going to be wheeling overhead for a, a while now and may be making only very slow progress to the east. Indeed, the National Weather Service office out of La Crosse observed in their afternoon forecast discussion that the forward speed of the storm had dropped to about 10 or 11 miles per hour. Uh, An approximation you can generally verify if you have a look at the visible satellite image of the upper Midwest with the surface streamlines added that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage up in the featured graphics section there. That image goes back about eight hours. The streamlines will show you the position of the surface circulation, which you can see move across just a few counties in Minnesota and northern Wisconsin during that time. The circulation in the clouds up above where the streamlines are is maybe a dozen or 20 miles to the south of the surface circulation. So that shows you how vertically stacked this system is. We typically expect the circulations at those two levels to be, say, several dozen or even 100 miles apart if the storm were uh, still evolving and advancing forward at some speed. You might also note, if you're looking at the image, the prominent clear slot under the path of the upper-level jet that feeds into the storm from the southwest. That feature passes eastward over southern Wisconsin shortly after sunrise. And, of course, it kept us clear for a pleasant few hours there during the morning. We've got into the cooling phase of the storm around midday. First aloft, which is what produced the steady infill of uh, cumulus clouds that we saw in the late morning hours, and then down at the surface by about mid-afternoon, that's when the temperatures began to fall. Uh, With temperatures already cold up above us, we're likely to reach an overall column temperature supportive of seeing snow by, say, 5 or 6 in the morning tomorrow. By that time, the freeze level is going to be down at, say, 1,000 or 1,500 feet or so. We're likely to see mixed precipitation then through the morning hours tomorrow, possibly into the afternoon north and west of the city and on higher terrain before seeing uh, all rain for a time tomorrow in the afternoon. Of course, as we cool then again tomorrow evening, the precipitation will turn back over to snow and I think stay in frozen form through a good portion of Friday. Precipitation will generally be showery over the next couple of days and will be more likely at certain periods when areas of more active convergence and leftward turning within the larger upper air circulation are passing overhead. Short-range high-resolution modeling is showing rough agreement on the timing of a couple of those waves. One uh, tomorrow in the late morning and, uh, well, late morning through uh, mid or late afternoon period, so right in the midday, and then another in the overnight into mid-morning of Friday. After that, I think the precipitation should become uh, more showery and scattered. But during those episodes, some whitening of the ground is definitely possible, especially the latter episode uh, going into Friday morning. We will see the entire system begin to lift northeastward later Friday, allowing upper ridging and warmer air to start pushing in from the west. That should allow us to climb back above 40 for Saturday and into the 50s for Sunday, though we may start to see more cloud cover and possibly some precipitation start to move back into the area as moisture returns later in the weekend period. We'll be warmer through several of the beginning days of next week. But back to tonight, uh, widely scattered light showers will continue to pass uh, at some speed from west-southwest to east-northeast over the next few hours. 
Uh, current radar indicates most of those are at this point west and northwest of the city. The radar was not picking up some of those, partly because the radar to our east is down at the National Weather Service. And some of these uh, showers are actually very low in the atmosphere, and the radar might not have been catching them. Anyway, temperatures will drop steadily through the 40s and upper 30s to around 35 degrees by dawn tomorrow and continued gusty west-southwesterly winds up at 12 to 20 miles per hour and uh, gusting towards 30 miles per hour or better. Showers may slacken for a while later tonight, but then start up again as we get on towards dawn tomorrow with uh, some mixed uh, snow, I think, at that point. Showers will become more widespread by mid or late morning tomorrow and continue through much of the afternoon. I think we'll uh, switch from uh, mixed precipitation to all rain in the afternoon, but snow may continue to be mixing in in the northern parts of the listening area. Southwesterly winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour in the morning will veer west and northwest later in the day. Temperatures will reach the upper 30s, uh, possibly 40. We may dry out for a time then later tomorrow into the overnight with temperatures dropping to the low 30s on north, northwest to north winds up at 12 to 17 miles per hour. A second period of precipitation, mostly snow this time, as likely as we go overnight into Friday, becoming more showery and sporadic than uh, from, say, the earlier mid-morning Friday on through the rest of the day. Eventually, I think that will pass. the showers will pass to the east, and uh, we might see a little bit of lifting and clearing late in the day. Temperatures Friday will be held in the upper 30s, by and large, by cloud cover and snowfall and continued northerly winds up at 12 to 17 miles per hour. Skies, uh, as I mentioned, may begin to clear some as we go overnight. That'll allow temperatures to drop into the upper 20s, uh, buoyed some still by northwesterly winds up at uh, 5 to 10 miles per hour overnight. Saturday, we'll see continued clearing and temperatures, I think, struggling up into the at least the low 40s, possibly the mid-40s, given at least some sunshine and lighter northwesterly winds that day. We'll be back towards about 30 in the overnight period, then I think into the low 50s on Sunday. Uh, just now at the station down on Bedford Street, the air temperature is 43 degrees. The dew point is 35 degrees. Uh, winds are out of the west up at uh, 13 miles per hour, still gusting up towards 30 miles per hour occasionally. Uh, we've got a broken overcast uh, up at about 7,000 feet, but passing uh, lower clouds beneath that. And the barometer is uh, on the rise now. It's up to 29.46 inches of mercury. p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go...
We go now to April 1968 for the local aftermath of the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Stu Levitan has the details on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, that tragic April of 1968. Once again, thousands gather to grieve atop Bascom Hill, just as they did in 1963 for the state's official memorial for President Kennedy. But this time, the mourning is different. The morning after Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination in Memphis starts with a heated disagreement between Chancellor William Sewell and a group of about 20 black student leaders over competing plans for service that noon at Lincoln Terrace. Sewell, who has already canceled that afternoon's classes, wants the students to speak as part of the official university program, an idea they emphatically shout down. A black person was killed by a white person, declares Sidney Glass, head of Concerned Black People, and black people must lead the memorial, not just speak as part of the program. Things get tense. Sewell yields. He agrees to make introductory remarks, announce that he's keeping several buildings open for students to gather in later, and then allow the black students to run the program. The program itself is full of bitterness and anger. Clara Meek, One of five students to speak during the 20-minute program breaks into tears. I have a dream, too, she says to the crowd of about 10,000, almost all white, that one day every darn one of you is going to pay. Kenneth Irwin says, quote, There is no other course that black people can take but to riot. And unlike President Kennedy's memorial service, there's a march. At an estimated 15,000, fully filling six blocks of State Street, it's the largest demonstration in Madison's history to date, other than to celebrate an athletic championship or the end of a war. Rows of black Madisonians up front link arms and alternate between freedom songs and militant chants. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, interspersed with black power. They march around the Capitol and up Wisconsin Avenue, heading down Langdon Street to the foot of Science Hall, where they sing two choruses of We Shall Overcome, then move in large numbers to the buildings that Sewell has kept open. Once there, they stay for hours, black and white, engaging in the most candid conversation about race the campus has ever seen. Observing the packed auditorium in social sciences, Sewell thinks it's the capstone to, quote, the greatest day for education that had ever hit the campus. The regents aren't so impressed. They pass a rule requiring permission of the president and the regents' executive committee to declare a campus holiday. Saturday night, folk singers Peter, Paul, and Mary open their concert at the Dane County Coliseum with a tribute to King and a haunting rendition of Bob Dylan's When the Ship Comes In. Sunday afternoon is dark and windy as a crowd of 3,000 gathers at the Capitol for the Communities Program, highlighted by stinging comments from concerned black people's Ardenette Tucker. She condemns what she calls the Madison community, which still believes there are no race problems here. I will break some windows to make you care. 
then four white men, Reverend Alfred Swan, Professor Maurice Zeitlin, businessman Jack Van Meiderheim, and Father Joseph Hammer lead the silent march down State Street and out University Avenue to the First Congregational Church for a memorial service, attended by Governor and Mrs. Warren Knowles, Mayor Otto Feske, and other dignitaries. Equal Opportunities Commission Chair the Reverend James Wright speaks. Reverend Swan recites Lincoln's second inaugural address. Rabbi Manfred Swarsensky preaches scripture. And Reverend Robert Borgwart reads from King's letter from Birmingham Jail. The Reverend Richard Pritchard, the only Madison cleric to have spent time in the South for civil rights, is not invited to participate. A special offering for Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference collects over $1,000. On Tuesday, Madison School Superintendent Douglas Ritchie keeps schools in session during King's funeral, but he tells principals that pupils, quote, must be well informed as to the significance of Dr. King's life and informed concerning the issue of equality for all citizens. Thursday night, the City Council finally agrees to the long-standing request from the Equal Opportunities Commission for a paid executive director and votes 19-2 to to create and fund the $10,000 position. Mayor Feske says it's, quote, a matter of the highest priority as the events of the past week have lent a special sense of urgency to the issue. The only alderman to speak in opposition is a member of the EOC, Alder James Crary, a Dane County Deputy Sheriff. I don't think we have a serious racial problem in Madison, Crary says, but within five years, with a director, we will have one. When Crary's term on the commission expires two weeks later, Feske does not reappoint him. As expected, Feske on May 18th names as the EOC's first executive director its chair, Reverend Wright, 42. A native of South Carolina, Wright holds a B.S. degree in psychology from the UW, formerly served as associate pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church, and operated a nearby barbershop. This spring, he has also been attending the Urban Training Center at the University of Chicago, focusing on police community relations. And there's a death this week in the university's own family, as Regents President Kenneth L. Greenquist, 58, UW Law, class of 1936, dies of cancer the day after King's murder. An eloquent and forceful advocate for the university during difficult days, he is not quite six years into his nine-year term. A former two-term state senator from the Progressive Party, Navy lieutenant with World War II combat experience in both the Atlantic and Pacific, and past state commander of the American Legion, the Racine attorney was ideally suited to defend the university against conservative attacks. He fought the Legion itself in the mid-1950s when it denounced the university for allowing left-wing speakers and pushed back against more recent Republican criticism of the Daily Cardinal and student protesters. His death and the end that month of fellow liberal Arthur de Bartlebaden's nine-year term leaves only two Democrats on the board, enabling the seven appointees of Republican Governor Warren Knowles to affect what de Bartlebaden blasts as a, quote, partisan takeover of its leadership that will harm the university. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan.
And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Remember, this show is put together largely by volunteers, and you could be one of them. We need your help down here if you'd like to work on a volunteer-produced radio news program. We provide all the training, so it's a pretty good deal. Get in touch with Shelly Pittman, our news director, during business hours if you're interested. Your headline writer this evening was David Aaron. Special thanks to feature contributors Andy Barrow and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman is our engineer this evening. Nate Weggy helped produce tonight's newscast. And Shelly Pittman, as I mentioned, is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.